The phrase to seek the welfare of the city uh, in the last line of the Bible reading that Bill just shared with us is the one that sticks out for me or jumps out at me. And um, it's interesting because I've never noticed that phrase in this particular reading all these years, but this year it really seemed to. And I think partly in that it feels that we're in a time where the common good uh, is something that in our country and our wider culture um, and our capitalist society, that that's something that we often overlook, the common good, because we're so used to thinking about our own needs or what we deserve, as advertising will tell us, those kinds of things. And I was thinking about this, and I remember being a young person um, and inspired um, about maybe joining the Peace Corps or something like that years ago with uh, John F. Kennedy and hearing the speech on television that ended, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Thinking about that and, and that era in the 60s and how that decade felt, and then I remember in the election campaign in 1980 hearing the phrase, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that was the first time that it ever occurred to me that the common good wasn't stronger than our individual needs in the viewpoint of people in our country. And I think about right now, uh, in the coming voting that we have, we have another car tabs piece in our, in our state, and how often that seems to be such a struggle to, uh, there's so much a part of our culture that tells us that we shouldn't have to pay for something, that all these things that we want should just miraculously in, uh, appear, and that we have people that spend their whole time working on legislation or working on initiatives to take away the kinds of things that we have already agreed to support together for the common good. But more than that, that's from us as a place of stability, a place of privilege, a place of um, not a place of being on the bottom of the heap. And in this particular reading, this uh, scripture was written for people who were in exile, uh, the first Babylonian exile of the Hebrew people in the Hebrew scriptures, before the second one um, that uh, they came back and then the diaspora that um, we've heard of in the centuries since then. But at this particular time, King Nebuchadnezzar, if I can pronounce it correctly, um, was the one who had, had received these people and they were living in Babylon and they were unhappy, they were far from their homes and in today's language they would be refugees. And that's really something that's important for us to name and understand. One of the realities of the present day world is the last figures from the United Nations tell us that there are about 70 million displaced persons in the world right now. That's the largest number that has ever been. And of that, three and a half million of those persons are seeking asylum, are afraid to stay in the places of their origin for fear of persecution, uh, or death, uh, whatever happens to them in that way. So that's a reality, that's a part of our world that uh, you think about how many, 70 million is larger than France, larger than Germany, larger than uh, a lot of countries in the world. In the biblical narrative, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, we are told, and there's a theme, to take care of the orphan, to take care of the widow, to take care of the alien 
and they're told as you were refugees, as you were sojourning in Egypt under someone else's uh, jurisdiction and under their rule, and at this present time, now Babylonia. And that the orphan and the widow and the alien were ones that there was no social security net for people, those people in that day and time, so that they were really looked upon by uh, others in the community to be taken care of. And it seems to me that we've come so far from that that probably when I think about persons in our country uh, rallying behind our current president and chanting, send them back, seems about as far from the biblical narrative as I can imagine as an example in the present moment. I also wanted to um, share with you a book, and I'll pass it around in a, in a moment. It's called What We Carried, Fragments and Memories from the Cradle of Civilization. And these are pictures and uh, examples of what someone from Iraq or Syria carried with them when they had just a few minutes to leave their home. It's their writing and, uh, and pictures of, uh, of what they did. And the, uh, the inside of the front page has this amazing quote. It says, no one puts their children in a boat unless the boat is safer than the land. So I'll start. It feels like in this world we can have compassion overload and sometimes it's helpful to have a book and pictures and someone's particular story just to help us understand the reality and the people and the families and the children um, behind these uh, stories. And in fact, we're remembering uh, when David and I were in uh, Zatari refugee camp two years ago in North Jordan of Syrian refugees. At the time, it was the largest refugee camp in the world. It housed 80,000 people, and more than half of those persons were children. And as we talked about that and shared with you, that some of those were children that were full of spark and life and energy, just like children anywhere, everywhere. And others, it was as if their spirit had been blown out like the light of a candle. So thinking about this passage and thinking about refugees today and thinking about that's possibly in my mind where it were appropriate a modern place to go with this particular Bible story. I was also thinking about refugee camps that I visited, Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank. And one of the things that those people, um, Palestinians often carried with them in addition to whatever else might be in there was the key to their home. And if you go to refugee camps in the West Bank now, many of them, they don't have money for things like public art. That's not something that refugees have money to do. But in the, over the gates or the entrance, the main entrance to most of the camps is a giant key. And it symbolizes the key to those persons' homes that they fled from in 1947 and 1948 um, with the hope that they'll go back someday. And if we think about the homes that our ancestors, our grandparents, our great-grandparents were living in 1948, how many of those homes are still around? How many of them have not been overdeveloped or changed into something else or toned down? So it's, it's a hope that they have, but it's not a hope that's based in a real strong reality, but they hold the keys um, nevertheless. So I wanted to share um, two quotes 
uh, in terms of refugees from uh, the person that was our artist that shared with us the assemblage, uh, the broken pottery that was in our gallery during Lent. Her name is Lauren McGrail. She's the United Church of Christ pastor. And this is one more piece in the things of the world that have happened this year that with everything else, um, this has gone pretty much unnoticed in the mainstream media. A year ago, the current administration abruptly ended all United States government funding for United National Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees, and it's called UNRWA. That act reversed a policy of support by every American president, Republican and Democrat, since UNRWA was created 70 years ago. UNRWA has provided support dedicated to and unique for Palestine refugees displaced and driven from their villages and homes in 1948 and for their descendants. As the single largest donor, the United States has given over $350 million over the past 70 years, constituting about 30% of UNRWA's annual budget. Stopping of USAID is a huge hit, a cruel and unconscionable undercutting of a humanitarian organization with devastating consequences for Palestinians. So, and then her response to what has happened is one that I think I sometimes echo here. You wonder sometimes in the world, where is the hope? How do we meddle through uh, times like this? And she writes this, in God's garden of broken shadows, facing night and canons of time, we are commanded to cultivate hope. How? How do we dare speak of hope when all around us are signs of dispossession, destruction, catastrophe? How do we speak of hope when each day records new human rights violations, another family made homeless, a school demolished, a nonviolent activist imprisoned, a village disappeared. On earth, as it is in heaven, not yet. Is hope still possible? Was it ever? St. Augustine wrote, hope has two daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to make sure they do not stay that way. He saw hope as a mother who gives life and mourns when that life is threatened or violated. Her daughters are righteous rage and the courage to stand where God stands or where Jesus leads. To cultivate hope, then we must adopt hope's daughters as our own. So this is how we cultivate hope. We go to the places of suffering and struggle, to the garden of broken shadows. We stand where God stands, and we join God's mission for another world. We become gardeners in that garden of abundant life and broken shadows. Well, those are all wonderful words and maybe inspiring, but how do we do this? What are our day-to-day -day actions of this? And I would say and, and submit that we're already doing it in the ways that we can. A month after our shelter opened uh, last January, we had our wonderful February weather where everything was so snowy and awful and Seattle basically shut down. Well, we gave the persons in the shelter a master key to the building with the thinking that if the buses aren't running and the libraries are closed, we're not sending you out into the snow, which ended up for being for four days. 
So they incredibly were very good at being in the different rooms that weren't being used by the 12-step groups that didn't come into the building, uh, because, uh, did come into the building during that time. And the absolutely wonderful um, place that we hadn't seen is they got all a helping of the wonderful fundraiser lunar dinner that happened that month. I also think of someone in this congregation that was in the pulpit doing a, um, an offertory talking about a personal and a work a retreat and work project in Africa where he actually gave the shoes that he was wearing to someone who was in that village. I also think of something I saw last Sunday at the homeless dinner where there was a fellow, uh, a client at the dinner who was only in a t-shirt. It was a cold day and he asked for some help and one of the persons in our group went to his van and came back with two or three articles of clothing to give to him. So, I think that we're doing it. And I think that when we feel overwhelmed by the reality of the world, it doesn't matter that we're not saving uh, all of the people on the planet. When we took your and University Congregational's uh, donations to Zatari Refugee Camp of 80,000 people, we were able to deliver money so they could buy 2,000 pairs of shoes. That's a drop in the bucket, but that helped for those 2,000 children to have shoes that they didn't have before. With that thinking and with that um, making a difference, let me close with the following story. Once a man was walking along a beach. The sun was shining and it was a beautiful day. Off in the distance, he could see a person going back and forth between the surf's edge and the beach. Back and forth, this person went. As the man approached, he could see that there were hundreds of starfish stranded on the sand as the result of the natural action of the tide. The man was struck by the apparent futility of the task. There were far too many starfish. Many of them were sure to perish. As he approached, the person continued the task of picking up starfish one by one and throwing them into the surf. As he came up to the young man, he said, you must be crazy. There are thousands of miles of beach covered with starfish. You can't possibly make a difference. The young man looked at him. He then stooped down and picked up one more starfish and threw it back into the ocean. He turned back to the man and said, it made a difference to that one. In that spirit, amen. Mm -hmm.